Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. At this year's Collision, a tech conference that took place in June in Toronto, I had the opportunity to interview two editors about how they think about the problem of disinformation and how they direct their publication's coverage of it as an issue. This short podcast installment is audio of the live stage discussion with Betsy Reed, editor-in-chief of The Intercept, and Matt Kaminsky, editor-in-chief of Politico. Many thanks to Stephen Toomey and the other organizers of the Collision Conference for including this panel in a series of discussions on the role of the Fourth Estate. Uh, well, we're going to solve a very big problem today, the problem of disinformation. It's going to be sorted by the time we leave this room. So um, we're, we're planning to, to take it piece by piece, one by one. I uh, have joined with me today uh, Betsy Reed, who's editor-in-chief uh, since 2015 of The Intercept. Uh, so if you're into topics like war, surveillance, tech, media, and perhaps the worst of them all, U.S. politics, uh, check out The Intercept. Um, and then I think uh, uh, you'll all know Politico Matt Kaminsky, um, formerly a Wall Street Journal, uh, Kiev correspondent for the FT uh, early in your career. Um, so when it comes to disinformation, you know, uh, perhaps a, an early uh, <laughs> education that you had there. Um, so uh, I'm just start things off by asking you uh, a little bit about the beat of disinformation, how your publications cover this phenomenon, which, uh, as we mentioned, is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um over the last five years, there's been more of a focus on it, um, an enormous amount of research, an enormous amount of, uh, you know, kind of focus on the, the bad actors and the use of disinformation in politics and uh, the industry of disinformation, the rest of it. How do you think about it as editors? How do you grapple with this huge topic? Perhaps we'll start with you. So, I mean, one of the things I think we've learned in the past few years is that while it's necessary for journalism to serve a sort of fact-checking function of those in power, powerful institutions and politicians, it's not sufficient um, because we have seen the rise of politicians who are simply, you know, impervious. They don't care. Um, they're lying on purpose and um, they're, you know, they, they won't respond and their followers, which include also other media institutions, will simply justify the lies. So simply correcting isn't enough. Um, so we've taken a kind of more investigative approach to look at um, exactly how those lies are constructed um, to expose you know, the, the, the larger system that profits from the lies. So, um, and I think it's been very interesting, the series of lawsuits we've seen recently, um, Dominion, suing Fox and OAN, and there have been some big losses um, for those institutions. And I think as journalists, that gives us, you know, a, a window into um, and some of the dynamics and look what is actually known at the top levels and how these institutions are profiting from the spreading of lies. So I feel like, you know, we just, we definitely have to go deeper than just simply serving as fact checkers. And we have to, in a way, I mean, it's all about information warfare these days. All parties do it. All people across the spectrum do it. And in some ways, I, you know, I think journalists need to think of ourselves as 
you know, playing a certain kind of information warfare, but for the truth, like really trying to kind of reach audiences with truthful stories. And that's a, a big challenge in today's media landscape. I think, as you were saying, it is a huge topic, and I, I think you can get easily disoriented by it. So um, at Politico, but I think this probably applies to a lot of places, you know, we, we are only 15 years old, but we do think of ourselves being very old-fashioned in our approach to journalism, that it's really about the reporting, it's about uh, sort of taking, trying to make sense of the world as you see it, uh, unfiltered through a partisan lens. So I think for us, and we're also, it's in our name, we're obsessed with politics, but really obsessed with power. And what I think had really emerged by 2015, 2016, is that this world, the world of this conference, was also a major player in our world. That tech companies weren't just doing good out there, they were sort of reshaping our world, and they were reshaping our, our politics. And we had to think about covering them the way that we cover you know, Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy, uh, other powerful institutions and players. So in 2016, you know, it started off actually in the UK with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, then the um, Russian efforts to um, sow sort of confusion in the US election. We said, okay, we have to cover primarily these platforms, and we have to understand um, how that is reshaping the way people are voting, the way that our politics works. So we have uh, mostly through our tech teams, um, but reporters, we have Mark Scott in London primarily, but uh, other reporters there and as well in the U.S. who basically try and really kind of look at what the platforms are doing. It's not always easy. The platforms aren't very good at sharing information. But we've done, I think, a lot of interesting stories by pairing up even with academics, trying to get um, kind of data sets that we can mine to do interesting stories and generally really kind of bring the same, uh, I would say, both ferocity and velocity to covering this space that we do to any other story out there. So in the broader conversation about disinformation, clearly there have been a lot of efforts to address the problem, governments uh, addressing the problem, the platforms addressing the problem, journalists standing saying up, they are. <laughs> saying they're addressing the problem. Um, and we could, we could probably have a, an hour-long conversation about just where to situate the problem, uh, you know, uh, mostly. Um, but there have been political ramifications of those efforts to combat disinformation, uh, kind of loss of trust, uh, you know, in certain factions, um, different parties feeling as if they're they're targeted as the disinformers uh, for expressing their their points of view. Are there downsides to this frame of disinformation of thinking about uh, some political speech in in some cases as disinformation? I, I think you raise maybe I can start. I think you raise a very good point that the danger of let's say if you are fighting disinformation, you actually could contribute to disinformation in the sense that. So trying to to compensate, well, there is, there's always been disinformation. It's it's a Russian word. Uh, we go back to the Soviet period and how the Soviets try to manipulate the information space in the pre-internet era. But that as you're now sort of um, trying to kind of grapple with it, that you at least we try, and I really talk to my journalists quite a lot about this. You try and be very wary of remember what you're doing. You're sort of seeing things with clear eyes, and uh, be very careful about not making partisan judgments because whether it's through virtue signaling in the way that you frame the story or it's in stories you uh, refuse to cover, you basically can paint yourself as being a disinformer. And I just, you know, and you all know the you know, outrage on the right over the way that Twitter decided the Hunter Biden computer story was disinformation, where it actually tended up to be mostly true. Uh, so I, I do think there's a danger of sort of trying to sort of push back and really 
you know, I always tell reporters, like, let's just keep the adjectives out of our stories as much as we can. Just report what we know and what we see. And, and really don't let the other side, whether it's the left or the right, paint you into a corner as carrying water for one of the other sides. I mean, the thing about that example, though, is that, I mean, I, I do think it was a mistake to call it disinformation because, you know, it, it turned out to be real information. But the entire narrative and frame built around it was misinformation. It was wrong. Um, so, I mean, I think in that, that is a good instance of um, when it was a mistake to use the, the disinformation word, which, you know, really refers to a deliberate attempt, usually by a state actor, to deceive. Um, in terms of your question about efforts to combat this phenomenon by either government or big tech, I think there's a huge risk that we face in having either of those major entities engage in a kind of censorship in, uh, in an unaccountable and untransparent manner. Um, because, you know, I mean, government, that has huge negative implications for free speech. We really need to be able to have a robust press uh, reporting about government secrets that uh, they don't want to have out there. So that is a, an inherently fraught um, dynamic. And then big tech has been, you know, notoriously secretive um, in the the algorithms it uses and in the in its its approach to content moderation. So a lot of what we've done at the Intercept is exposés actually about that very process of content moderation. Like how who's making these judgments? Why? Um, and and revealing in particular how those judgments are often quite parochial and you know really reflect. Um, U.S. national security priorities and and interests when, in fact, these are global platforms who are affecting politics and lives throughout the world. So, I mean, I think there is a real problem of transparency and accountability um, in the, the efforts to tackle disinformation, and I think it's an important role of the press to, you know, force that, um, that transparency and accountability by doing reporting on those things. It does seem like in uh, the kind of day-to-day -day politics, it's almost like sort of trying to stick your thumb in the dike when you're addressing disinformation in particular contexts. I mean, clearly the January 6th commission or committee is going on now, um, and in the, the kind of you know talking about the big lie uh, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, um, whereas we know we have now um, what a hundred GOP uh, candidates across the country who uh, are going to be in positions potentially of import over the election's outcome, uh, who also uh, are invested in that particular narrative. We've got similar things going on in, on in Brazil at the moment. When it comes to where the rubber meets the road, uh, elections and how democracy expresses itself, do you feel like that's a particular vulnerability that you, you have to address disinformation differently around elections? It reminds me that you sort of line that if you repeat something often enough, people will believe it. And that's what Donald Trump has sort of managed to, to do. Uh, I just think that as journalists, I, I think the only thing we can do is, is, is fight with the tools that we have, which is our ability to report, and our ability to kind of get information that is, um, um, you know, framed in a way that we think is, re reflects the reality uh, of the situation. And again, it is not filtered through any kind of agenda. I think, you know, we're always going to fight for truth. This is where we do have an agenda as journalists and probably should, but, but it is truth, um, uh, in, um, uh, in the service of truth, not of some other, other end. Uh, I guess ultimately, 
you know, obviously the press has got a very essential role in a democracy. I cannot imagine being able to run a publication in a, in a system which is not democratic. Um, but it's, you know, it's ultimately up to the citizens to fight for their democracy. And, and our role is, is clear, but actually I think should be circumscribed around doing our job, which is journalism. Push out the good and hope that, that it counters the bad. Exactly. I think that, and, and sort of make sure people sort of see that you are a credible source of information. And for us, it's a part of our business model, but it's also, it's very important to me that both Republicans and Democrats read a story in Politico. They may hate it, but they will believe that it's true. Even if they go on Twitter and say that it's, that it's fake news. <laughs> Maybe Betsy, I'll just I'll, I'll amp the question slightly to you. Um, despite our efforts, uh, we know around the world democracy is in a, hopefully not terminal, but certainly a decades-long decline at the moment. Are there enough thumbs in the dikes? Can we, uh, you know, can we meet the challenge? <laughs> that, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a very perilous and worrisome moment um, across the world. There are a number of democracies that are vulnerable. Um, we just saw happen in the Philippines, which is deeply connected to um, the spread of disinformation and its amplification on, you know, social media networks. Um, in Brazil, you know, Bolsonaro has had a, a significant amount of success in manipulating people through um, spreading misinformation through the sort of vast net media networks that are, um, some of which are, you know, online, others are more conventional, you know, television broadcast. But, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to work for him. He, I don't, I don't think uh, he's poised to be successful. So, I think what's likely to happen there actually is maybe you know fairly similar to what happened here in 2020 is that he will lose and he will claim that it's fraud and they'll be mired in something quite similar that we just experienced. And then you're going to see whether you know the institutions hold up, which they did in the U.S. Yeah. without much of a strain, to be frank. I mean, let's not overstate things. In Brazil, you know, is the military going to launch a coup to keep Bolsonaro in, in power? Yeah. I think there'll be tests of institutions. And actually, will not be a question of whether, you know, the, the sort of there's disinformation out there about, about the, uh, what happened. My last question, Betsy, you mentioned the kind of underlying economic incentives and the industry that's been built uh, to supply disinformation and in many cases to service these politicians, mm -hmm. um, often work done in uh, parts of the world that you know don't get a lot of scrutiny from journalists. Um, there may be tech executives or startups here that are working in ad tech uh, or working in other parts of the information ecosystem. What would you say to them? Uh, what should they do to help make certain that they're not contributing to this problem if even obliquely. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's a very tough problem for the tech industry and media organizations ourselves because we do depend on engagement and a certain type of content that, you know, that generates that engagement is not necessarily the type of content that is good for democracy. But that, that part of that reason that's true for media is because of the algorithms that are determining the distribution of our news, right? Who sees it? Who, who gets to respond to it, um, and 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 what what rises to the top, and what gets the biggest audience? So I think you know if there if there's any progress that could be made in changing those incentives, changing that incentive structure to you know get more people to see news that is real, but that also might contradict their you know prior beliefs and um, 
you know, get them to a, a place where um, they can openly consider that, um, I think that would be hugely beneficial. Um, but it just, it does feel like the dominant um, assumption of the entire industry is that that's not what is going to generate profits. Um, and that is a pretty fundamental problem that we have. Capitalism is the problem. Is that where we're going to end, Matt? Capitalism is the answer, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, d- democracy is the answer. I mean, it's sure. a free, free society. Let's be glib about it. You know, if you have this quaint belief in, belief in a liberal order, uh, uh, then, then you know, these are challenges to a liberal order, but a liberal order that is strong enough will be able to, to withstand them. I, I think, you know, we, um, you know, as an immigrant from the Soviet system, you know, I, I, I'd probably look around, yes, these are all challenging times, but it's still better than what I grew up with the first 10 years of my life. And I think this is it's a testing moment for our, for our systems, but um, I, I think being clear about what our role as media is in this system and then having some degree of faith that, you know, it's ultimately up to people who are voters and active citizens to make choices and fight for certain rights. Uh, and, um, I mean, you know, the U.S. system has been around for 200 and almost 50 years, so so uh, I I would hope that it would take more than a you know charlatan from uh, real realtor from from New York City to sort of bring it down. You know that would be a a sad uh, a sad statement on on what we have. Thirty seconds shout outs to journalists that are covering this beat at your respective organizations that folks could, should follow. You mentioned Mark Scott. So I have Sam Biddle is doing an amazing job covering Facebook um, and Rob Mackey, uh, who has done a lot of great work sort of taking apart the propaganda that's emanating constantly from Fox News. Um, and Peter Moss, who has kept to the focus where it really ultimately belongs, which is on the Murdochs and, you know, how they are ultimately responsible for what Tucker Carlson does. Mark Scott's email uh, is uh, his newsletter is in particular a must read in the in tech policy space if you care about these issues. Um, I think we will stop there. Let's thank our two panelists, and I hope that all of you will help us solve the disinformation problem. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to the organizers of the Collision Conference. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.